Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on Danish saxophonist, composer, and best-selling author Benjamin Koppel. Benjamin joined us to discuss his July 2023 release, Perspective, the latest work from KCB Collective, a trio that, in addition to Koppel, includes Scott Colley on bass and Brian Blade on drums. It looks great on paper and sounds even better. Benjamin is the grandson of Danish classical composer Ermann D. Koppel, while his father, Anders Koppel, is a renowned Hammond organ player and composer. As you'll hear, music, creativity, and the arts are in the Koppel family DNA. We recorded this episode at the end of September, and since then Benjamin has announced another new project due out November 25th. White Buses tells the story of the Red Cross evacuation operation at the end of World War II. It rescued over 20,000 prisoners from Nazi concentration camps. The work features a mix of first-person spoken accounts gathered by Koppel himself and brand new compositions performed by a set of international all-stars. We recorded our talk before this project was formally announced and of course before the October 7th terrorist attacks in Israel, which add an all too unfortunate timely nature to this release. Benjamin and I had a great time connecting which came on our second attempt after he and I had some time zone snafus. Luckily, we were both able to laugh it off and get cooking. Enjoy. Hello there. Benjamin, hello. We did it. We did it. (laughs) I'm sorry about that mess last time. I was so ready, but you you would think that now, by now, almost 50 years old, I was able to um, navigate in different time zones. But apparently not. Nobody said there'd be math in podcasting. <laughs> not exactly. I'm really sorry, but I'm here. Please, and please. I'm, I'm ready for it. Great. It's it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for making time twice. Of, of the calls, and thank you for your patience, and thank you for not just erasing me off your friends list. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was going to, but then I listened to the album, and I said, well, I, I have to make an exception here. It's such a great... <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm unfortunately, I'm probably going to kiss up to you a little bit as we talk here, because um, <laughs> there's some things about the record that are just so phenomenal. But one of the things that really stood out for me was there was a video online that you guys had of a live performance from, I think, May of a little snippet of precipice. Yeah. Something that struck me was how happy the three of you look. You could see the movement in your bodies and just the sort of surrender to the music. Well, we, we definitely do. We love playing with you, with each other, but more than that, we are very close friends, all three of us. And I think that uh, emerges into the music. I know it, it, it does. Basically, Music is about love and sharing, and we have a lot of love for one another, and our families know each other, and mm. there's a lot of love between our families, and uh, it's a family situation much more than a professional situation. And so we just enjoy being together, and we enjoy making music, and we have this very profound idea of it's a collective, any which way, we look at it, it's a collective, and 
No one is never taking the lead. We are much about just giving space and let the music lead us, which is why sometimes it's also difficult for us to actually make decisions because who's supposed to, to take charge? We're all open and flexible towards each other. And the solution often lies within the music itself. If we just let the music lead the way, then we, we have the solution. For so it's a real democracy. It's a real collective, both on and off stage. It's very interesting that that's immediately where you go, because I, I've spoken to many artists, actually, in the last year or so on both sides of the Atlantic who have been very much involved, either explicitly using the term collective in their ensemble name or describing what they do as a collective. And it seems to be, I haven't analyzed it enough to say there's a trend, <laughs> except to say anecdotally, it stands out for me as something that seems to be recurring lately amongst instrumental music ensembles. What is that from your perspective of sort of the leaderless collective as opposed to, you know, the Koppel Trio? First of all, we uh, we began playing with this collective actually 11 or 12 years ago or something. It's it's not a thing, an idea. It's just something that we do and wanted to do. And even if we have breaks or we have a year that we're not going to tour because of our busy schedules, this will always be an entity, a unit that we know we will come back to. The reason for that is both within the fact that we are so good friends and we have this close connectedness. We have, we have very deep friends, but also in in terms of music, because we really love all three of us to explore what this leaderless music can evolve into. I've made a lot of albums where I've come up with the idea and the concept and I've written all the music and arranged and curated the band, the group or whatever, I'm producing it, I'm mixing it, um, all that. And and that's a whole other approach that could come from an idea. I'm in the midst of finishing an album that I've been recording with Randy Breaker and Ferenc Nemeth, mm. which is comes from an idea of depicting the similarities between World War One and the war in Ukraine, which is on so many levels the same shit. War is, regardless of age or time, the suffering is the same. I saw a picture of trenches from World War One, which was so horrifying and, and terrible and heartbreaking. And then another picture from trenches in Ukraine, and they were almost alike. And it was super scary and terrible and made me think of what war is and what it does to us and how it's, it's the same and it was the same even a thousand years ago. It's all about making other people suffer. I put that into music. I wrote music. I found lyrics, Apollinaire and a Danish poet and wrote all. So I had a total concept, fixed concept that I got excellent musicians to help me explore. So that was a like really me taking leadership or charge within a project. I do that a lot of times. But with this trio, it's the opposite. It's all about what we don't play. It's all about, in our trio, giving space to the best idea or the best ideas and do as little as possible because in that way, the three of us can create something that is probably, hopefully, bigger than just the sum of the three of us, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Would you mind 
giving me just a little bit of context or background on your relationship history with each of your partners in the collective? I got to know pianist Kenny Werner in probably 2005 or six, almost 20 years ago now. Instantly, we became very good friends and off and on stage, both musically and personally. And in 2009, I began having my own jazz festival annually in Denmark, in Copenhagen. And by 2010, it was two times a year. And this festival, I always brought in Kenny, and we thought up a lot of different music collaborations and situations, brought in different people, put them together. We've been curating more than 100 different setups, settings, concerts. We've been playing with everyone from Julian Lash to Lee Konitz, a lot of different people, Randy Brecker, Lovano, Chris Potter, Bobby Watson, uh, a lot of different wonderful guys, Ron Miles and Yen Lee, uh, Daniel Lumea, Muslau Vitus. We brought in different of our collaborators and friends and musicals, Leah songs, and we put them together from almost the first or the second festival program. Kenny brought in Scott. He was he kept saying, you got to meet Scott. You will love him. He'll love you. You will have a very special connection. We're going to bring in Scott. And so we brought in Scott probably in 2009. And we did become instantly friends. And we did bond musically right away. And it was just like been playing for ages. The first gig we played was actually Quintet with me and Kenny and Scott. And Abercrombie, John Abercrombie and Al Foster. Which was a great setting. And, and we had... I don't know, four or five nights or something. And it was amazing. And we had great fun. But what really came out of it, besides of us having fun and we made great music, there might even be a recording actually somewhere. But it was the friendship that me and Scott developed right away. After the last concert, we were like almost simultaneously saying to the other, we need to play some more. And so we did. And I think maybe... It was in 11, 2011, we played a quintet with me, Scott, Kenny, and Randy and Brian. We had, again, four or five nights or something like that. And out of that quintet situation, it was actually Scott who suggested that we should explore the trio sound because we had so good connection. Actually, I think we had a sound check. I think Kenny and, and, and Randy Breger were late, so we just began playing trio on the sound check and we had so much fun. And then Scott suggested, hey, we need to do this some more. And we did. And we recorded our first album uh, in New York in CS Sound Studio, probably in, I don't know, 12, 2013, something like that.
I think one of the things that you brought up that I wanted to get into was that lineage and the interest in the pianist trio, the saxophone yeah. trio. You have a track on the album that references Cy Johnson. And then the addition of Brian as the drummer, like the freedom that must come from not only the saxophone trio, but the feel of a drummer like that. It's really stunning, the platform that that provides. Brian is an amazing musician, as is Scott. I feel very privileged and honored and humble about the fact that I get to make music with these guys, but even more so, I get them to call my very dear friends because it is so important for the music that we have this connection outside. I mean, we stay at each other's houses once in a while. With my whole family, we stayed at both Brian's place in Louisiana and, and Scott's place a few times in, in New York as well. And the, the family knows each other. It's a deep thing that goes beyond the music. But for the pianist trio, regarding that, it gives so much freedom, so much space. We, we play in the realm of jazz, definitely. The great trio recordings, of course, Stunning Rollins, Village Vanguard, or Joe Henderson's trio. There's a lot of amazing trios in the history of jazz, which we all love. But when we play, we draw evenly as much on other musical references or musical loves. I've been playing uh, once with, uh, with Ryan in, in the church where he was brought up. And he, he was brought up on gospel music and religious music, which is a great part of my upbringing as well was black American religious music, gospel. I was singing all the time when I was a kid. Golden Gate Quartet was my one of my favorites. And Aretha Franklin and Mahalia Jackson and Blind Willie Johnson, all that. So we have, we have a lot of different references that goes much beyond jazz, which we use instantly and instinctively when we play together, which makes it so much fun and so easy to develop new threads, really, because we don't have to be limited to some kind of perception of what jazz is or what jazz can be, or we don't feel restricted in any way. We just play music together. With Brian in particular, it's very interesting that for me, the first time I saw him perform live was actually not in a jazz setting. I saw him with Emmy Lou Harris in Nashville. Oh, yeah. In that context, you get the same perspective on him, but just from a slightly different point of view, which is he brings that same feel and the way he moves the music. I was going to use the word propels, but that's not really what he does. It's more like martial arts and the shifting of the energy. <laughs> yeah, he's The thing about Brian and Scott is that they are never pretending. They never pretend to do something that they don't mean. They're always, in my perception of what they're doing and what they bring to a, a musical setting, they always come with the most sincere and beautiful honesty, which makes everything possible. So I think the honesty is very central to, to what they do because the honesty of their musical spirits, so to speak, is prevalent all the time. It's right there. My my father, has, he has a very good friend. My father's a musician as well. And he has a friend musician from when they were teenagers. And he, when I was a kid, this this friend, Jens, very good electric bass player, uh, he always talks talked about when I was a kid that 
if if you hear a musician or a singer that really touches you, look for his soul. And if you can see his soul or her soul when he or she is playing, then it's there. And with Brian and Scott, you can see their souls when they're playing. Just It's all about honesty and love for the music and for the setting. And I think a lot of it's represented or manifests in the physicality. You can tell that there's not a restraint. There's a full commitment. Yeah. There's full commitment and also they have a lot of courage. They don't get restricted of things that might not be, be successful when they aim at a tone or it or a phrase or a comment or an idea. They always dive into it with the uh, utmost sincerity and a really strong presence of courage. That is kind of rare because uh, a lot of people are afraid in all circumstances of life to show their weaknesses or getting their ass on the line, basically. And these guys, they do it with every note counts and they aim for it. And if it doesn't go there, it has to be... You go somewhere else because they have this courage. And I admire them deeply both. It's such a joy making music with these guys because we, we have so much in common and and we have so much uh, respect for each other and so much love that we can do anything with this trio when we pick. And, and at the same time, it's never about any of us. When we play, it's never about me. It's never about Brian. It's never about Scott. Never, ever. There's this lack of ego lack of self-consciousness, which is, is something that I really enjoy and really feel is quite special with this trio for us. Hopefully a lot of other settings has it and people discover it and experience it in a lot of different settings, but it's never about us. And and that makes it so special and, and, and valid and, and lasting. And I know this will be a, a lasting friendship. No one will ever try to push it in, in the direction that the others would feel uncomfortable with. In a setting like that, how do you align around repertoire? Like, how does decision-making in general happen? We all bring music to the trio. When we get together for a new tour or a new recording, we, we all bring music. Some of it is thoroughly composed. Some of it is half-baked, and we develop it together. Some of it we even develop on the spot. When we do an album, we have a, a, a new new track that we always invent in the studio. So we all bring ideas and, and music for it if, for the trio. For the first album, Brian, for instance, he brought in a, a traditional Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair, which was inspired by Nina Simone's version of that particular song, which is not jazz. It's not, you know, but we, we don't have to label it. It was just a beautiful melody and it suited the trio perfectly. We also... At some time, at some point, played a Jim Morrison Dawes song that Brian brought to the group. I brought a, a Prince song at some point. So we bring in different things. I wrote a, a fugue in, inspired by Johann Sebastian Bach's fugues, which is on the first album, which is weird for that setting, but suited perfectly. So everyone brings ideas and, and songs. The indecision of a true dem democracy comes uh, for us when we play live because we have to make a set list before we go on stage. I was all like, anyone has ideas? And I was like, I'll defer to you guys. And then at the end, somebody picks us up. How about starting this? And yesterday we did this, so let's do this tonight. Is there more recorded than you use or is the program of music pretty much determined once you start rolling tape? We do have a few things that we didn't use 
I think we discarded probably one or two songs when we did the sequence because we felt that the sequence we chose was the right one and we didn't need more music than that. It was what we wanted to, to say in this particular release. I guess there was a few more tracks that we didn't use. But when we get into the studio, usually we have pretty good time for it because we can make a different version, but not necessarily a better than the first one. And sometimes we do a second version and sometimes we, we just go with that and with the first one and go have lunch and then we take another song. This trio is a lot about the spur of the moment. If we had recorded the album two days later, it would probably have sounded different. It's very much about creating in, in the moment. Spontaneous combustion is the challenge of coordinating your availability sort of the biggest limiter on exploring this trio? Totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Because <laughs> it's really, that, that's, uh, that's terrible. And we're working on it. We've had at least one yearly hit together, one tour since probably 11 or 12 or something. We try to aim at that, but that's a difficult thing. Also because I'm in Europe, they're in America and they're not even in the same part of America. All three of us are really busy with a lot of things. So that's definitely the biggest uh, restriction factor. Something that, that really stands out also is how, while it might be different types of musics, the three of you are all involved, not only in a quantity of projects, but you really do seem to put a lot of intentionality into exploring settings, configurations, stylistic approaches. Like That seems to be a another intangible element that the three of you share is it, it, maybe it's a curiosity or a, a wanderlust for exploration it, it, it totally is we're so uh, curious about music i think for us there's no goal it's all about the process the more that we are within the process the more we thrive as musicians as persons and the more we can get together in in settings with one another or with other good friends, that's where we, we really thrive uh, artistically and where we can develop all the ideas that each one of us has because we, we do have a lot of musical lust and interest and, and eagerness to, um, to explore where music can take us and hopefully where, where we can take music as well. Do you create in any other forms outside of music? Do you paint? Do you do film? Like, do, you, do you have any other avenues for expression? I released my first novel last year in Danish, which actually has become like a, a super bestseller in Denmark. It's super great. I just actually got a message tonight that they are putting the, the 10th print. So it's the best-selling debut novel of Danish literature ever. My goodness. So yes, I have this other outlet as well. Wow. <laughs> which yes, really took everyone... Especially me by super surprise because I, I wrote it because I felt I had to write it. I just had this idea, this urge to do it. I, I always wrote a lot when I was a kid. Actually, before I was, began playing saxophone, I wanted to be, I thought I was supposed to be a writer. But then music took over for real when I was 13, 15. And I released my debut album when I was 18. That put my writing career on, on hold for 30 years. <laughs> We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. I want to let you know that we have the first of a small line of Spotlight On collectibles available at spotlightonpodcast.com slash store. 
Just in time to treat yourself or someone you care about to a gift this upcoming holiday season. Have a look. And now, back to Spotlight On. Does narrative make its way into your music? Definitely. I think for me, there's different ways. But as, for instance, with the project I told you about earlier, which is really about war and suffering and what war does to humanity and, and the traumas that become intergenerational traumas and all that, that kind of a story. It's a fixed narrative that tells a story which I feel is important. Hopefully someone else will feel it's important as well. For instance, with our trio, the narrative is much more abstract in the sense that there's no storyline, but there is much more a concept of providing, of giving, of offering with the fear of sounding new age, like offering our love for music to whoever wants to listen to it in the hope that it might have resonance for somebody. It's a much more abstract narrative, and I, I really love both ways, it, because wherever the music takes us, that's where it makes sense. Yeah. For instance, with my novel, I also released an album. I composed nine songs that depicts another side of that story that I wrote, which is a story that is based on my grandfather's kid sister's life, which was quite extraordinary. It's a fictionalized version of her life, so to speak. But I wrote nine songs, which was released in connection with the novel. The songs that the Danish singer Cecilia Norby sung, and actually Kenny Warren and Peter Erskine was on this album as well. But there was a strict narrative about my grandfather's little sister's life, so to speak. There was a, a storyline, it was a life explored artistically, but a very strong narrative. So that's, again, a whole other way. It's a true life, lived life, which came into music and then came into a novel. So I, I do love different ways of doing it. Almost every project has its own way, its own narratives, its own way, its own way of being framed and setting a setting for the music. It almost sounds not quite analogous, but a bit adjacent to the concept of like program music. I, I've been preoccupied with the notion lately because I've been reading a lot about list. And so, yeah, oh, <laughs> so that's top of mind as you talk about that. It totally, but sometimes it, it has to be like program music and because the, the music demands it or the story demands it. And sometimes we go as completely other ways. So I never restricted myself to enjoying one or two or three kinds of music. My grandfather who was a classical pianist. He told me there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. And you, you have to, to decide for yourself what has resonance in you, what tells you a story, what makes you feel good or what makes you cry or what makes you feel numb or disencouraged or uninterested. Find your own way. Find out what are the two kinds of music for you. I'm eternally grateful for that advice. And it's, as I mentioned, I listened to a lot of soul music, gospel music when I was a kid, a lot of classical music. My father, my grandfather, he was a, a pen friend with Bartok, speaking of classical composers. I've always been listening to a lot of music. And actually, jazz was actually the, one of the kind of music that came latest into my life. I didn't really listen to jazz until I was 12 or 13, when I began playing saxophones, I, suddenly I became super interested in saxophonists. And I found the LPs with Johnny Hodges and Benny Carter and Charlie Parker and Earl Bostick. Those were my four 
first four heroes. And then it just blew from there. You like very muscular saxophonists. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to muscular probably, but in, a, in the most beautiful... Elegant, an elegant. Elegant, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then after that, Rollins became my big hero and then was called playing Ornette. Uh, then I discovered Paquito de Rivera because he was playing in Copenhagen when I was 17 years old and I went to concert with him. And actually, I, I knew his name because my father had a L piece with Itaqueda, the Cuban group he was in, with Arturo Sandoval and all that. I went to concert with Paquito and I was blown away by his like, expression and his joy, the, the way that he almost catapulted music joy out of his horns. And I approached him. My, my girlfriend said, you got to go up there, talk to him. And I was, I don't want to talk to him. Redheaded, four-eyed, Copenhagen, teenage sex, wannabe. And he, he was such a nice man. And he gave me his number and said, if you're in New York, look me up. I would be happy to help you. And so I went to New York when I was 19 years old and stayed there for eight months or something. And I took private lessons with Paquito, except he uh, he told me he couldn't even teach me anything, but he wanted to play duets with me. So that was the lessons, which was the best lessons ever, just playing back duets and all kinds of duets with Paquito. But yet, there's so much good music, and it would be such a shame to be limited to only some of the music due to a misunderstood snobbery of which etiquette or label or genre is more valuable than another. I love all kinds of music. If Speaking of Emily Harris, I mean, Dolly Parton is one of my biggest heroes. I love country music. I love Elton John and Rod Stewart and Prince, Michael Jackson. There's so much good music out there. And I'm just thankful that I get to enjoy and, and discover so much of their music as a, a music lover. That mode of thinking about the music that's good for you and the music that you don't know, you know, the good and bad music or the two types, it does such a great job of obliterating that arbitrary nature of genre. Because we often talk to people that say, oh yeah, I like all kinds of music, but I don't like opera. Exactly. They don't know if they like opera. They they don't like the idea of the genre, but they might like one opera a lot and that's enough. Yeah, ex exactly. It's the same with, with food. I don't like vegetables. You, you can't say that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Every because, vegetable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you have to just open your heart and your mind and yeah. Yeah. Do. Otherwise you steal something from yourself, a, a great potential of growing as a person because that's what good art does to us. We, we grow every time we experience art that, that talks and speaks to us. And the, the more the merrier, so to speak. So for that reason, I've always been super curious about all kinds of music, Arabian music, classical, modern music, ancient music, whatever. And I've been fortunate enough to play with a lot of different musicians. The state ensemble from Java, I made albums with Jewish Klitschmann musicians, with Arab musicians, with Cuban musicians, with African musicians. A lot of different vibes, uh, tonalities, musical languages that have invited me in and I just had to hang on the best I could, which is a great privilege because I've been fortunate enough to learn so many different people, so many different approaches, and actually also getting to know it from the inside. It's also fun when you can embark on that exploration and you start to find 
the similarities, right? It's like, oh, you find oh, this yeah, melodic yeah. similarity or a, this rhythm that repeats itself. It's in African music. And then all of a sudden you find it in indigenous Australia or it's just that exactly. that's something that's so exciting and fun. That's super interesting. As human beings, sometimes we forget both as individuals and as a society that there is so much more that unites us than divides us. And that goes for music as well. If we dare to open our heart and our mind to music that we don't understand when first listening to or experiencing it, we will most certainly be rewarded. So again, if somebody claims they don't like opera, then go see another opera or a third opera and open your heart and your mind for it and you will be richly rewarded. Yeah. alluded to something that's hard not to bring up when speaking with you, which is your family context and the, yes. the the various, not just musicians, but artists in your sort of family tree. And in a lot of the biographical information about you, it, it basically refers back to your grandfather as the more modern first person of your family that's noted as a musician. But do you have a family history or knowledge of your family's involvement in the arts predating that? No, that, that would be the short answer. There might have been. I know that the grandmother of my grandfather, she was an illiterate, is that called the, the word in English? She didn't read? Yeah, yeah. Or, she was a, a Polish Jew, part of a Polish. I was actually just there the other day to see if there was something left of that shtetl, that little village where my great-grandfather split from in, in 1906, and there was, which was super interesting. But I know that the grandmother of my grandfather, she sung a lot and she was out of an old Jewish folk singing traditions where the stories or the the legends were sung to the next generation. So I know she sung a lot, but we don't have any knowledge of, of art being a, a branch of work before my grandfather. And actually his mother, which is my great-grandmother, and his father as well, they had been tailors for centuries, for generations. And my great-grandmother, she would, she knew about, you know, in 1906, she knew about the great Jewish famous musicians, Heifetz, Rubinstein, people like that. And she knew they were making a lot of money, traveling the world, being famous and being able to send money back to their moms. And so she wanted her... <laughs> a yet unborn child to be a pianist. 
So what she did was she took the savings that they had. They had very little savings in 1907 when she became pregnant. They were living with, with apparently three other families in a one-room apartment. And she didn't use the savings to move to another place with more space. She, she used the money to buy a little piano to, for the unborn child, which became my grandfather, who became a pianist. That's incredible. That's a family legend anyway. And it's probably true. Or it's exaggerated, but it's a good story. It's a great story. <laughs> yeah, let's not debunk it. <laughs> no, no. And, and my, my, my grandfather's um, memoirs is called From a Home with Piano. And he tells that story in his, his memoirs. So it's probably true. How does coming from a, a multi-generation line of musicians, how does that manifest things like drive or ambition or even competition for you? Is there is any of that in your makeup or in your psyche? I don't know. Uh, I think first and foremost, what we have been blessed with is the love for music and the curiosity about music. My grandfather told me when I was a kid, he said, music is, when I began playing drums, I began playing drums when I was five, six years old, and I took piano lessons with my grandfather when I was nine, sorry. And he, he told me, Benjamin, music is the funniest thing in the world, so take it seriously. And that was a really good piece of advice. So if you want to do something with it, take it seriously. Practice, become better, go in, into new corners of what your your capability is. Find new paths in music, find new sounds, new explore what the instrument can. You know, be, be, take it seriously. Then it'll become even more fun. And he was so right. So I never felt anything beside support in choosing a a line of work which is financially insecure, but never any pressure of becoming a musician. I have a, an older sister who is not a musician, but she's a, an illustrator and makes uh, animated movies, art movies by hand. She's really fantastic, Sarah. But she's not a musician, and there was never like a pressure that everyone was supposed to be a musician at all. But from very early on, we got to know what music was able to give, and we got to know the joys and wonders of music. And those keys to those doors, we were handed from very early on. I was on tour with my, my father, and also actually my mother was an actor, a touring actress. But I was touring with my father with his band when I was two years old. I slept on the, on the stage and the carpets that his Hammond organ was wrapped in during transport. So I stepped on the stage while he was playing. I never saw my parents work. I always saw them having fun. They were playing. And there's this dual sense of the verb to play. You can play music, but you can always also play, you know, game. It's a, it's fun. And that's what I saw my parents do. They were playing all the time. They never worked. For that reason, from very early on, we all became super interested in music and being part of that playfulness and that space of love and joy, which music really it can be. And for the same reason, probably I have two, two older sisters. None of us have formal educations, but we did something else. I'm sort of curious about some of the other side of that, which is being involved with the business part of your life and having, I guess to call it a record label would be a little bit too small at this point, but to have your, to have, Probably, to have yeah. yeah, to have Cowbell <laughs> as a 21st century working artist, I would think 
there's the necessity of understanding your business and participating. But could you talk a little bit about what does the business side, like, how do you think about it? Is it a something you do begrudgingly or are you an, an excited participant? I initiated my, my record company as a record company in 1999, so just before the millennium, um, because I had released probably six or seven or eight albums by the time I was 25. But I had so many more ideas of projects that I wanted to do, and I recorded a lot of projects. And then this label of awesome, they said, you, you are allowed to, to release one album a year. And I was like, dude, I have 10 ideas every year. So if I have all these ideas, I'll be constipated. And there was no, they, they thought the business line would be one album a year, that's it. And I feel like this is not right for me because I thrive with productivity. I get all these ideas musically or also with other kinds of projects, but mainly musical. And if I don't fulfill them or get them released, they'll just take up space in my mind or in my creativity and they'll become a well of frustration if it doesn't come out. So I had to have more freedom of doing what I wanted and when I wanted to do it. So I initiated my own record label when I was 25. Suddenly I could do whatever I wanted artistically and release whatever I wanted when I wanted. I have had a few years in my lifetimes where I released six albums in one year. I did that three times, I guess. Very different albums. Albums that I'm super proud of. One year was, I made an album with Charlie Mariano and I made another album, completely other music with Miroslav Vitus. And, mm. and that freedom was given to me due to the fact that I suddenly had a, a label that was my own where I could actually make the decisions. And to be able to continue having that freedom of doing, make my projects, my ideas come true, I had to have an understanding of the finances or the business, as you call it, because otherwise the, the well would run, run dry pretty fast. And in the beginning, there wasn't money for a layout, so I had to learn how to sit with InDesign and, and Photoshop and Illustrator programs. And I made the first like 10, 15 releases we did. I made the, the covers myself because we didn't have money for a real layout. So I I learned all those different aspects of it and it was super fun. And then when things grew, I focused my time and my concentration into what seemed to me to be the most important parts of all this namely the music, the content, the artistic content. I've had employees ever since 99. I started with a half-time employee and developed from there. Now we have a, a small group of four and a half people beside me, which are doing all the stuff, which is great. We have very nice office in the basement of our house here in, in, in Copenhagen. So that's where they are. So we have a lot of interaction because I'm in the house, I'm composing all walking dogs, talking on the phone or playing saxophone or whatever, you know, having rehearsals in, the, in this the living room. But they're downstairs working on the projects. So they come up, I go down. We have really a, a good dynamic uh, in, in, in that respect. But also I got to know all of the different business aspects of what a label is, how to get your things into distribution, how to keep a budget, all those kinds of low practical stuff that is needed uh, if you want to have that freedom to do whatever you want to do uh, whenever. 
And that's what I really was aiming at because I have always had all these ideas. And now I think I've released probably perspective. If, if you count that as me co-leading it, I probably did uh, released 60 albums as a leader or co-leader. And that could only happen because I have had my own company, my own productivity space where I could just call the shots, throw the ideas on the table and then get somebody to, to run with it. I've been very fortunate in that respect. And it's, it's always a, a challenge financially and in all kinds of different ways. But it's been an amazing ride journey because it gave me so much freedom to pursue all these different music collaborations that is now on the shelf and has been uh, forming my musical life with the last 25 years. Are you on every Cowbell release? Probably almost. <laughs> but we did, I think we have released around 100 albums now, and I'm probably on 50 albums or something. So you will put out other artists' projects? Yeah, we, we have done, but all, always people in the vicinity of my family or our family, either by blood or by music. For instance, my kind of my uncle, I call him my uncle, the Danish drum legend Alex Reel, who's now 83 years old. He played with all the great American stars in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Dexter Gordon, Stan Getz, Ben Webster, Bill Evans, Dizzy. And he was the house drummer's legendary Danish jazz club, Lomata. So he played with everybody, recorded with everybody. And he's my uncle because he was in my father's very successful beat rock band in the 60s, Savage Rose. Alex played the drums. It, was, it wasn't jazz again, another vibe of music. So he's been knowing me ever since I was born, very close friend to my father, and I've been playing with him ever since I began playing professionally. And we put out a, a number of his records without me, for instance, a couple of albums with him and, and Jim Pagansi and a trio album with him and Kenny Warren and Pierre Boussiquet. So we, we do other stuff as well. We like it to be in the vicinity of the family or the broader family, not only by blood, but, but musically as well. It's really fascinating, Benjamin, the space that you occupy, not only creatively, but in the context of the music lineage. You talked earlier about the Joe Henderson trio, but you also played with Al Foster. And so there, there's all these connections in your musical universe, in your musical family, as you refer to it. It's an amazing place to sit, I would imagine, and look out, look, look backwards and forward and think about where the music's going and 
it's super privileged. I mean, I'm the luckiest man alive by the fact of geographical coincidence, just by being born in this part of the world makes me 1% probably of the most fortunate people in the world. And then being able to explore and make a living of what you love and your hobby, that makes me 1% of 1% or even more. So I'm the luckiest person alive, uh, most fortunate person alive. And with that comes also, for me, an obligation to both take it seriously and, and do something with it, but also an obligation to take notice of and take part in helping people who are less fortunate to have decent lives. I've been taking quite a lot of part in the whole political debate around refugees in Denmark, because I, I believe we are such a fortunate and rich oil country that for me, from my point of view, we need to do as much as we can and even more, for instance, to help refugees. And because people are trying to save their lives by fleeing from their countries without anything from wars put on them by dreadful dictators or despots, Putin, Assad, what have you. And so for that reason, I feel so privileged that I have to also be aware that all my privileges doesn't mean I only have to be concerned with myself and my own well-being or my nearest family's well-being. That kind of disgusts me. So I would, I really feel that I'm obliged to, to do something to try to help people who are much less fortunate than I am. It was something that you're saying is touching on something I've been thinking a lot about lately and all this discussion of how technology and AI and et cetera are going to start to impact the creative fields and the industries around creativity. And I, I'm slowly developing a thesis that the role of the artist is actually going to become only more important as all these things happen, because there will be one more of a need for authenticity and, and human connection, but also that empathetic point of view that you're talking about, that even if a machine can create aesthetically pleasing things, it would seem to be, and thus the algorithm gets very good, that it will miss that spark of empathy, that extra piece that the artist does to contribute to our culture and our society. Definitely, I totally agree. And also, there's a quote of Baudelaire, which I probably can quote correctly, and not especially not in English, but the perfect seems cold and excluding. So what we look for as human beings, we look for the imperfect, the imperfections, the small holes and, and small cuts or fragments where it doesn't really knit together. And within the imperfection, there lies the beauty. It's the essence of the quote of Baudelaire. It's much more poetic in his words. But mm -hmm. I think the AI will never be able to take those musical, for instance, with the music, those musical chances, they won't be able to display that music courage that we talked about earlier, which also gives us as artists opportunities to fail once in a while. And within those fail, that's where we become human, that's where we can relate with other humans. You're totally right. We will become even more dependent on the prism of artists, the way they look at the world and get into their optics, so to speak. Also because we face quite a lot of big challenges as humanity does. We have more and more 
dreadful, power-seeking, horrifying despots around the world, but we also face climate change, which is, which is super real and right here, and it's much more powerful and has much larger consequences than we have ever thought of. And still, we are not grasping the seriousness of it, and we still have governance delaying restrictions on this and that, gasoline or flying, clothing companies, which also pollute, or new buildings. We throw a lot of good resources away by tearing old buildings down just to build new ones. All those things. And I think we need to get much closer to the fear, which, again, is what artists can tell us. We can know about our own fear. We can learn that we're not alone with that fear. And maybe, that's my hope, get a sense of togetherness, a, a unity that might overcome some of those really big challenges that we face. Benjamin, thank you. Well, thank you. And so wonderful talking with you. And uh... well, likewise. Thank you so much, Benjamin Koppel. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Furrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.